Peter's now going to come and bring us our reading from Romans chapter 9, verse 1 to 18, which you'll find on page 1136 of the Church Bible. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons, theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated, at the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had, anything, had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Well, if you're hoping for an exposition of that passage, I'm afraid you have to wait for another time. Um, because um, there's a quote from that passage that Peter just read out for us that we're going to be focusing on this morning. That's from Malachi, chapter 1. And if uh, you'd like to turn to, to that book now, let me just read the first few verses which we're going to be focusing on this morning. That's on page 960 of the Church Bibles. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. An oracle. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say... Though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. For this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. 
I don't know whether any of you saw the interview um, before Christmas between Piers Morgan and uh, Elton John, one of the most successful musicians of, uh, of all time, anyway. It's a very um, open and honest interview. Piers Morgan has this way of getting underneath the surface and getting people to express what they're thinking and feeling. And um, what um, Elton John shared with um, Piers Morgan in that interview was that um, he had never once felt the unconditional love or the approval that he craved from his father. And so he sought refuge instead in his music and in other relationships. And uh, we've read recently that he's become a surrogate father at the age of 63. I don't know if any of you have seen the film The King's Speech yet. It's uh, just come out. I very much recommend it to you if you haven't. It's about um, King George VI, about his uh, stammer, and the relationship that he has with his um, speech therapist, who not only helped him with um, his speech defect, but helped him get to the cause of that defect. And as he traced it back, as he helped him talk about his past, it, again, there was a sense of a love that his father never was able to express to him. Now, sadly, there are many people who share that experience of not knowing their parents' love. And that may be you this morning, have not really known your parents' love. And it's a feeling that can prompt many different reactions. Uh, it can end in, in anger, uh, in a sense rebellion, or maybe uh, apathy, maybe a determination to prove that you are worthy of being loved. But ultimately what marks these um, feelings is a sense of disillusionment. And disillusionment is one of the main themes in this book of Malachi that we're going to be studying over the next few weeks. How the people of Israel have lost their passion for God and the way in which God reassures them of his love for them, uh, his faithfulness for them. Uh, at the same time, he challenges them as to their faithfulness towards him. Now, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the book of Malachi. It's probably helpful to, to say something about the context of it um, in order to understand why the Israelites feel as they do at this stage. I've got a little chart, I think, coming up here which I don't know how clear it is from, from where you're sitting. But um, let me just give you some of the key points on there. Malachi was a um, prophet um, who prophesied around 450 BC. His name actually means um, my messenger. And uh, so that was before this, this 400-year gap before the arrival of Jesus Christ. Um, for those that may be interested, the word books uh, written in that period, and they're called the Apocrypha, but they're not considered to be divinely inspired and therefore not part of the, the Old Testament canon. But as far as the historical situation was concerned, um, Judah, the, the southern kingdom of Israel, you may remember, was taken into captivity by Babylon. That was in 587 BC. But God had promised to raise up Cyrus of Persia to, to conquer the Babylonians. And, and when he did so, he, he um, enabled the people of Judah to be released and to return to their homeland and to rebuild their, their country. That happened. Uh, they returned 538 BC and completed the rebuilding of the temple in 515 BC. Now, whilst Malachi is speaking here to the, the remainder of that, that, that nation of Judah, um, he refers to Israel. So when he's referring to Israel, what he's saying is that these are the people who uh, have all those covenant obligations um, and they're also still responsible uh, for, for that. But also they are the, the heirs of the promises that God made to Israel. So these are the people who um, he's addressing in this, uh, this prophecy. Now you would have thought, having gone through all that, having been exiled, having lived um, in captivity for 70 years, they would have learnt 
um, their lessons from that. Um, they would rejoice in the fact that they're back in their own country. But as is often the case with uh, human nature, we soon become disillusioned. Um, and uh, they're living in a time of economic recession. There's, there's uh, drought, crop failure going on. And uh, they're still a subject to another foreign power. So they are disillusioned and they become sceptical, sceptical of God's love. Um, they become shallow and apathetic in their worship. <coughs> they become disobedient to God, as we'll see in, in future weeks, where it talks about um, uh, divorce or interfaith marriage, injustice, a lack of care for the, for the poor, and, and miserly giving. Now, you, this morning, may be someone who is disillusioned. Um, maybe it's a disillusionment caused by a feeling that uh, God doesn't answer your prayers, or maybe doesn't answer them the way you think he ought to answer them. Maybe it's because life has dealt you a, a poor hand. You've had more than your fair share of uh, injustice or, or suffering. Um, you don't mind putting up with some, but it's just gone on for too long and there's too many areas of your life where you're struggling. Uh, and maybe these feelings have caused you to become disillusioned in your faith. Maybe, if you're not a Christian yet, that they've stopped you actually coming to faith. It's become a barrier between you and God. Well, whatever your situation, how can these few verses help us this morning? How did God help Israel out of disillusionment? And how can he help us out of our disillusionment or prevent us from falling into disillusionment? Well, it's worth pointing out right at the outset in verse 1 that this is described as an oracle. This is an oracle, the word of the Lord. And I'm literally, it's, it's a burden, there's a sense of a burden in this. Um, which is how the word of the Lord is often described as a, as a burden. Because, you may ask, why, why is that the case? Well, because of the, the seriousness of what the Lord is saying to his people here. And also how they will respond to it. After all, it's dealing with issues of life and death. These are serious issues that we don't talk about much in our society these days. We're much, uh, we find it much more comfortable to talk about more trivial or superficial issues. But as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, he said the words of God are the fragrance of life to some, but to others who don't receive them, they are the stench of death. And that is why this is a burden that is being released here. So what is this message the Lord, the Lord wants Israel to hear? Well, recognising their disillusionment, God reminds them of his elective and unconditional love. First words that the Lord says are, I have loved you. Now, obviously just stating that is not necessarily going to convince them of, of his love. And in the same way that I might um, anticipate a question that you may have as I'm preaching and try and answer that, um, that is what is going on here. There's a sort of rhetorical device here that is used several times through the book where Malachi will ask, but you ask, how have you loved us? You ask, how have you loved us? It's all well and good saying that you love us, but we can't really see much evidence of that. How exactly have you loved us? And I wonder how you would answer that as a Christian if somebody asks you, well, how do you know that God loves you? How has God loved you? Well, remember at this stage that God has not yet carried out his plan of redemption. The Messiah has not yet come. Jesus Christ has not appeared. Um, the people here are trusting in God's promises for the future that this Messiah will come and save them and so he can't point to that at this stage 
But the answer he gives is actually quite surprising, isn't it? He says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now what this obviously raises is God's sovereign electing love. The fact that he chooses his people. And as Christians, we don't like to talk about election very often, do we? Probably because we feel a sense of maybe unfairness about it. We like to maybe leave that discussion till we're um, mature enough in our faith to, to, to appreciate it and understand it a bit more. But, but we can't duck it here. It's right here in, in our face. Um, and remember that God's not saying this here to people who are walking with the Lord, who are mature in their faith, who, who are blameless. He's saying this to people who are disillusioned, who are apathetic in their faith. And Jesus did exactly the same. Let's just turn, if you could, to um, John chapter 6 for a minute. Page um, 1071. This is a, a long discourse that Jesus is giving to a crowd of people, in which Jesus says he's the, the one from heaven, the one who gives life to the world and that no one can come to him unless the Father draws them. And the people are starting to grumble about this. They, they, they find his teaching offensive. So what does, what does Jesus do? Does he try and um, make the message a bit more easy for them? Does he try and dumb it down a bit? Well, actually, it's precisely the opposite. He actually repeats it. Have a look at verse 63 in chapter... chapter 6 here. He says there in the middle of verse 63, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. <coughs> Bearing that in mind that Jesus doesn't, again, duck the issue. Let's go back to Malachi and see what God exactly is saying here. Um, in case you don't know who Esau and Jacob were, they were the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. We read about them back in Genesis in the Old Testament. And the significance of them being twins is that God had just as much reason to choose one as the other. He could have chosen Esau, and actually had more reason in some ways to choose Esau because he was the, the elder son. He was the one who was entitled to the, the, the birthright and the blessing that uh, he was, was tricked out of. Now he, he was, as we read in Genesis, pretty foolish in his behaviour. But the point here is that even before he was born, God had chosen him. God had chosen Jacob. Let's just turn to um, Genesis chapter 25. I hope you don't mind uh, flicking about a bit this morning. Genesis chapter 5, verse 23. And this is what uh, God says to their mother, Rebecca, when she asks, what is this jostling going on within my womb? Why is this happening to me? And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you, from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. So even before they'd been born, God had decided which one was going to be blessed. 
Now Jacob in himself, the younger one, was not any more worthy of God's love. After all, he turned out to be a liar and a cheat. There was a lot that wasn't nice about him. But God still chose him. And later, if you just flick on to Genesis chapter 28, we we read there of Jacob after he's fled from his brother. He uh, lies down for the night and he has this dream. And here, God speaks to him. Look at uh, verse 13, Genesis chapter 28, verse uh, 13. This is what God says to him. He says, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. That's an amazing blessing and promise, isn't it, to one who didn't deserve it. So returning to, to Malachi then, that's, that's giving you a bit of a background to the, these two brothers. Um, what he, God is saying to Israel is, I have chosen you. That is how, how, how I have loved you. There is nothing in you that has meant you deserve to be chosen. You didn't fulfil any conditions to enable me to love you. But I chose to love you. And that is what we refer to as this unconditional love what so many people, what we all long for. God loved us before we loved him. So how should we respond to this then? It is an amazing truth. Um, And if you are a Christian here this morning, it should be very humbling to know that. It should remove any temptation from you to think that you somehow deserve to be saved. It should help you to avoid looking down on those who are not Christians. To think that they just haven't got it. What is wrong with them? It's only obvious, the the, the message of good news, when God has made it clear to us. And that is his grace working in our lives. And so it removes any reason for for boasting that we may have. If you're somebody here who's not yet a Christian, then the question for you is not so much, am I chosen, but do I want to follow Jesus? Because alongside these passages of God's choosing and election, we have to put passages that remind us of our responsibility, of our need to, to choose to follow him. Jesus said, he who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, I'm not trying to pretend that it's easy to balance these two um, concepts, but we have to acknowledge that they are two clear principles in the Bible. There's a divine election and there is a sense of human responsibility. And they're both there, they, they, they sit in tension, which don't necessarily contradicting each other. It's a tension that we, we, we work with and accept. But what about the rest of the sentence, though? Because um, it carries on, doesn't it? You know, J- Jacob, I have loved. But verse 3, But Esau, I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Now, this isn't a hate in the sense of I looked at them both and uh, decided I love Jacob, he's a nice guy, and uh, um, Esau, well, he's just a despicable character. I hated him. It's not that sense what he's saying here. It's more of a sense of I I chose Jacob and I rejected Esau. And, And you may think, well, how did Esau deserve to be rejected? But 
let's remember this isn't somebody who, who, who's innocent has been treated unjustly. This is someone like all of us who deserves to be treated in this way, to be, to be punished. Because we all re- reject God. We all deserve his anger. And so what he's doing is simply letting him get on with what he wants to do, which is to live a life without God. He's saying, if that's what you want to do, then go ahead and do it. A life in which he and his descendants are trusting in themselves. Where they say here, though we have been crushed in verse 4, we will rebuild the ruins. We will rebuild the ruins. Not anybody else. We don't need any God here. We will just carry on and sort our lives out. There's no sense of repentance here. There's no coming to God and asking for his help to rebuild. Very different from the people of Israel who returned from Babylon determined to rebuild the temple. If you, if you read the book of Ezra, you'll see there how they, they offered sacrifices, they, they gave their money to rebuild the temple, and then they praised and thanked God. Even before the temple had been rebuilt, they said, God is good. His love to Israel endures forever. A very different reaction here. Now the trouble is though, that um, the people of Israel here were probably looking at Edom and thinking, well, Actually, are they any worse off than we are here, worshipping God, giving our praise and thanks to God? What is the whole point of all this? And that can be quite discouraging, can't it, when God's um, people who reject God are left either unpunished or continuing to receive God's blessings. What is the difference between us here, they're probably thinking? Also, they, they were probably asking themselves, why did God allow us to be taken captive and be living in exile for 70 years, whereas Edom just carried on regardless and uh, they even helped our enemies to, to, to allow us to be invaded. And that is why God reassures Israel here in verse 4. He says, They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. It's a bit like, like Psalm 73 here, if you know Psalm 73, where the, the psalmist says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold, he says, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But as you read that psalm, later on the psalmist realises what it's all about. It's, he says, When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until... I enter the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. In this world we won't always see God's judgment on those who reject him. But God promises that that day will come. It will be a day on that when God's greatness will become clear to, to all nations. Which brings us on to our final point, that God encourages his people to trust in him until the day when his greatness will be made clear. Part of the uh, the disillusionment of the Israelites may be that they feel that God is just maybe not all-powerful. Maybe it's not so much that God doesn't want to see justice done, but that actually he's incapable of ensuring that that is the case. Maybe he's just like another God, like all the other nations have their gods. But God says here quite clearly in verse 5, you will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. There's a difference, isn't there, between something being true 
and somebody seeing that it is true. It's a bit like the resurrection of Jesus. This is something that was, was true, that had happened. But one of the disciples who didn't see Jesus afterwards, Thomas, said, I just can't believe it. I want to see him with my own eyes. And then I might believe. And once Jesus appeared to him, he, he was able to say, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to Thomas, he said, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And this is what seems to be going on here. The people of Israel do not appear to accept God's greatness because unless they see it in terms of their economic prosperity, unless they see it in terms of their their military might, then they can't believe in God's power. And what they seem to be lacking here is, is a faith. God is saying, I do love you. And I've already shown my love to you in choosing you. You are my special people. And one day you will see with your own eyes what I say is true. You will see my greatness as will all the nations of the world. But until that day, you need to have faith. You need to trust me. And that is what this covenant relationship is all about. It's following the laws and commands that God has given but it's doing that out of a sense of love for God and a trust in him. And the daily blessings that, that we will find later on will flow, what God will say, from their obedience to the covenant. They shouldn't wait for the blessings first and then say, well actually, now I'll decide how much I'm going to give of my life to God. No. Obey God, trust in him, and you will see blessings in your life. <coughs> and I think the same application can be made to us today. God has shown his love to us. He's shown it to us in the gift of a, sin, of a son. We are in a much better position than the people of Israel were in this day. And we're going to be celebrating that gift in just a, in a moment, that, that gift of Jesus as he give, gave his life for us. And our lives, lives of obedience are based on that love that he's already demonstrated. His full greatness won't become evident until he comes again. And so we live in faith, we live with a hope based on that promise. Now, if things become difficult for us in this life, that doesn't mean that his promise has changed. He says later in Malachi 3, he says, I, the Lord, do not change. But what we need to ask ourselves is, has our faith, <coughs> has our faith in those promises changed? Have we become disillusioned? Have we become apathetic? Because maybe of difficulties in our life. If so, then we need to go back to God and see how he has shown his love for us. I'm going to do that in a minute. Now, as I finish then, as I conclude, if you are feeling disillusioned with God, or if you're tempted to, if you want to prevent yourself being disillusioned, then consider that unconditional love. Consider what a privilege it is to be chosen by him. Consider the demonstration of his love in the death of Jesus Christ. And do not try to relate to God on your terms, but respond to him in obedience, and then your faith will grow. And you will look forward to the day when, as we say here, you will see with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. <coughs>